Amen. Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 991. You can find a Blue Pew Bible. If while Christiana was playing uh, that song, if you feel like that sounds familiar, I feel like I know that song, uh, we will end the suspense because it's a song we're singing after the sermon. We're looking forward to that. I'm already looking forward to that. Let's get the sermon over with. Let's go. Um, But this morning, I want to talk a little bit about maps and in life, how we should never underestimate the power of a good map. If you go back some of the oldest examples of uh, written communication that we have from mankind, uh, you will find examples of uh, maps and various forms of maps. Some of the earliest writings are maps because people always have and people always will need maps. And uh, today, whether it's a literal map for directions or how to build something or being able to verbally give people a map to kind of situate where they are, maybe you're casting vision for your family, your marriage, your company, you're, you're giving a map for people to follow and to join you on a journey towards something. We, we use maps to do things, to go places, to live a certain way. And um, I, I think in some ways we underappreciate it in our day because when it comes to, let's say, just directions and getting someplace on the map, um, we instantly know how to get anywhere at any point because of the GPS on our phones. Um, if you think about it, especially if you were driving places before there were GPSs on phones, you had to spend a certain amount of time to know, how am I going to get where we're going? Like, how do I get there? Especially when you're going somewhere for a first time. And now that time has been completely erased it's just a couple of seconds. You plug it in and you go and you're already on your way. Um, and on the flip side, you never need to tell people how to get to you. Whether in your home or your company, you never have to explain directions for people to get to you. Uh, so I remember as a kid um, hearing my mom and dad all the time having to verbally tell people how to get to our house. And they had to situate and decide where's the person coming from. And then from that place, they had a cadence of how to tell people how to get to our home. Or if my dad was telling people how to come to Grace Church. And I remember thinking, they were so good at it. Like, they they were so good at giving directions. um, Because they kind of had to be. Uh, You have to be concise. You have to give a good map. And so this won't even be... um, uh, literal or exact, but here would be an example. They'd say, okay, you're on 208, you're going to get off 208 South, and you're going to get off the Goffle Road exit, and you're going to take a right onto Goffle. You're going to go two miles, and you're going to get to the second light, and you're going to take a right on Godwin, and then a quick left onto Erie. And we're the second cul-de-sac on the left. If you see a Burger King, you've gone too far. Right? Like, and, and, and it was sharp, it was concise, there was no words wasted, and like, again, there was a cadence to giving directions specific with street names and distances that, um, and, and knowing how people in multiple directions, coming from multiple directions, would how to get to our house. So I got my license in a time. Uh, there were not smartphones yet. There were not GPSs on phones. But you were starting to see them in cars. You know, had the little garments. You had to kind of hook up into your car. Um, by that time, uh, within short order of getting my license, it became more commonplace to print directions off MapQuest, right? You remember MapQuest, and you kind of had it out, and you had a paper with you, and you had to bring your paper. Uh, but then even within a few years of that, virtually everyone had a smartphone, and that was that, right? That was that for the life of giving directions. So here's the result. I never learned how to give good directions. I give a horrible map. And early on, or occasionally now, when I get exposed by the fact that I never learned the art of giving directions, 
So, like, to take the same example, like, this is what I would sound like compared to my parents. I'd be like, all right, you're going to get off the highway, and you're, you're going to turn right, and you're going to go for a good bit, and uh, it'll, it'll be a little while, and, and then eventually you're going to take a, take a left. And any questions, I had, did not have the answer to, right? Like, what, what's the street name? Don't know. Like, I, okay, how far before I take, make that turn? And, and again, I'd be like, ah, it's, it's, it's a good while. It's a good while, but not too long, but, you know, a good, good stretch. Uh, how I know it to turn. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are, so there's like trees around, and when you see like a bunch of them together, that's like right around where the, where the turn would be. Uh, how, how will I know I got too far? Um, uh, so there's, there's this building, and it's got windows and doors, and it's pretty big. I uh, don't know who's there or what happens there, but if you see that building, definitely too far, right? Like the, the art of giving directions. Totally missed it. To this day, can't trust me. And that is the small example that we should never underestimate the power of a good map because it leads to places, certainly, literally, um, figuratively. It provides assurance in the person who's following your map. It helps you and others navigate through life. And navigating without a map leads to nowhere. If you navigate your life without a good map, it leads to nowhere. Well, the book of First Timothy, which we have just broken into and we'll be preaching through over the next several months, is a letter that tells us what the church is supposed to look like. And we know, and we say all the time, the aim of a church and our church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to know him and make him known. And sound doctrine, good sound doctrine, is the map to get there. For doctrine doesn't just reveal what you believe, but it shows you how to live. Everyone has a doctrine, whether or not they realize they live by a doctrine. And sound doctrine is the key to making a church go. And so that word picture, sound doctrine, as a map, it, it comes from a, a little book called um, Sound Doctrine. And it's written by a, name, a guy named Bobby Jameson. He's a pastor down in D.C., I have a quote on the screen from him. He says, God has given us a roadmap for living the Christian life, and that map is sound doctrine. What is doctrine? Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. A good map. It's essential for getting where you need to go. And sound doctrine is essential for living godly lives and for building healthy churches. Which is why immediately after the greeting that Paul gave the first Timothy that we saw last week in verses 1 and 2, doctrine is the first thing he now addresses. And so we're going to pick it up there. First Timothy chapter 1. We're going to cover this morning verses 3 to 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but this letter is um, different from many of the letters you'll find in the New Testament, in that um, most of the letters are written to churches. 
Um, but this one is written to an individual, to Timothy, who's at a church in the city of Ephesus. But it's also unique in that 1 Timothy is more practical than it is educational when it comes to theology. Let me explain that. Um, we will not see Paul explain doctrine in the way that he does in Romans, that he does in Galatians, which we preached through last year. Uh, because Timothy, who is his protege, who's been walking with him for a long time, he knows Paul's doctrine. He doesn't have to explain his doctrine to Timothy. Timothy is well aware of what Paul believes and what Timothy believes. Um, rather, this letter is a practical exhortation and instruction on how to ensure that that right doctrine is rightly handled and taught within the church. That's going to shape the picture of the church and the culture of a church and the mission of that church. So again, a practical use of doctrine, not as much of an explanation of doctrine throughout the book of First Timothy. Um, to maybe come at this from a little bit of a different angle, another way to say this would be that 1 Timothy provides the whole church valuable insight into the Holy Spirit's charge to pastors and elders. Throughout this letter, you will see what is expected of me as your pastor. You will see what is expected of your elders at Grace Church. And obviously the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write this. Paul's writing to Timothy, but knowing, and we'll see examples throughout, knowing that the church will eventually be reading this as well, that there is benefit for members of a church to know how its leaders should be acting and what they should be doing so that you can help us in leading you. And also you can help us, especially at a Grace Church, which is a non-denominational church, that, you can, that the membership is charged with holding the elders accountable as much as the elders are charged with the members being accountable. That is a two-way street. It's why we have a membership covenant, right? We're both saying vows to one another. So this letter, um, not all this morning, but throughout this letter, it will answer questions like, how should we operate at Grace Church? Um, how should a healthy church be structured? What should its leadership look like? And, and like also, like, what, what, what's the aim here? Like, what are we doing at Grace Church? What, what's our aim as a church? Why are you here? Why do you come? Why are you part of this Congregation, like First Timothy is going to kind of lay that out for us. How should it look like when we gather together? How should we look when we scatter from this place each week and go out into the places that God has called us to live, operate, and exist within? Um, how about a question like, what does success look like? What is a successful church? When you think successful church, what, what should you be thinking about? What metrics and framework should you think about a church that is successful? And how does that differ from the world's version of success? All questions that we'll see in the coming months. And so I, I just say at the start of this kind of, again, opening passage in the letter that if you yearn to be part of a church that's thriving through God's metrics, let us pay close attention to 1 Timothy. Starting with noticing where Paul starts. Because Paul starts by saying, hey, Timothy, make sure you have your map. Did you bring your map, Timothy? And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to the map of sound doctrine. We're going to carry this illustration all the way through this morning, in every way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to the map of sound doctrine. The gospel is the foundation that the church is built on, that we are built on. The gospel, that says that God, through the perfect life and sacrificial death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues those who place their faith in him rescued from the wrath of God and entered into peace with God. And it's a promise of the future, full restoration of his creation forever. And that is the key to the map that makes this thing go. 
And the first and most important problem in the church at Ephesus is the teaching of a different gospel, which is to say that they are veering into different doctrines, and it is a road that leads to nowhere. It's a bad map. And so I want to kind of set um, kind of this up for us, and here's how I'm going to explain it. Um, three points, starting with number one, um, the importance of sound doctrine and final words. Sound doctrine and final words. So we need to get out of 1 Timothy to understand how did the church in Ephesus start and what's the background that we know going into this letter. Uh, and the church at Ephesus is probably the church we know most about in the New Testament. Uh, we know how it began. We have the letter to the Ephesians in our Bible. We have these letters to Timothy who was at Ephesus. And then at the very end of the Bible in Revelation, Ephesus is one of the seven cities or seven churches that have a letter written to them from Jesus through John. So flyover account of how this church started. Um, in his second missionary journey, Paul, now we're in Acts chapter 18, Paul leaves the city of Corinth, and Luke tells us he's heading to Syria. He's going from Corinth to Syria, and he stops briefly at this city called Ephesus. And they ask him there, can you stay longer? We need you to stay longer. And he says, sorry, I can't. I can't stay. But there was a couple traveling with them named Priscilla and Aquila, married couple. And so he goes, Priscilla and Aquila, you guys stay. You're going to stay here. I can't stay. I got to keep going to Syria, and I will... Return someday if the Lord wills. So Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple, man and woman, are really the real church planters of Ephesus, even more so than Paul. They kind of got the ground movement there of preaching the gospel. They meet a guy named Apollos there, and Priscilla goes up to Apollos and says, hey, love your passion. Your doctrine's a little iffy. Let me teach you some things. And then Apollos then joins them, and the three of them are now in this city, and they're starting to do work. And then you get to chapter 19 in the book of Acts, the next chapter. Paul returns. And he stays for three years to see this church grow, to raise up leaders there. It's one of his longest stays in any city recorded in the book of Acts is in Ephesus. And throughout chapter 19, you see some powerful things happen in those few years. The church really became this disruptive witness in the large city of Ephesus. Because uh, Ephesus was filled with and known for its pagan worship. It was known to be a sexually perverse culture, ancient city, very pluralistic, kind of rare in its day, um, but this kind of cutting-edge city. And what's rising with it is pluralistic pagan culture, sexually perverse culture, and the gospel starts to disrupt it. People start getting saved. Church begins to grow. It begins to impact the economic power of the pagan worshipers. So a riot breaks out in Ephesus to shut down this church. Like, you know, you mess with people's money, now it gets serious, right? Like, it was cute, you had a little thing going, but now you're messing with our pockets, now it's a problem. The church was a problem in Ephesus. They didn't like it. Acts chapter 20, Paul now has to leave. It's been three years. Paul knows it will be a long time before he returns, if he's able to return at all. And so Luke records a pretty lengthy goodbye speech from Paul to the elders in Ephesus, the church leaders in this church there. And he says things like, you all know, I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, translation, I taught you sound doctrine. I emphasized the gospel and repentance and faith. I didn't shy away from it. I didn't cut corners. And not only a gospel that brings salvation, but it's profitable for your life. It gives you your map. Ephesus, you have a new map now. Follow the map. 
And then he gives a warning. And I want to project the verses here that he says, um, or I believe if they're not projected, if they're not, it's my fault, I didn't get to them. But it's Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 31. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Take note of that phrase. Keep that phrase locked in your head. Keep paying attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says to these elders what he'll later write to Timothy in this letter. He says, guard the gospel. It is your primary job as elders in the church. Guard the gospel. Um, Since 2017, when I became the senior pastor of Grace Church, our first elder meeting every single year in the month of January, we read Acts 20. It's now, we actually just met yesterday. And what we do yesterday, the same thing we've done in the first meeting in January, the last seven years, we read Acts 20. We talked about it, reminded each other of it. We prayed together. We prayed for one another. Because Paul says, don't just pay attention to the church. He says, don't pay attention to those who might come in and be members of the church who will cause disruption, start attending and then rocking the boat. He says, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The biggest warning is that it's going to come from one with you, elders, and it's going to lead everything else astray. Pay attention to what? Again, the guarding of the gospel. So, sound doctrine and final words to the church at Ephesus. Now we go to number two. We see in the book of 1 Timothy, sound doctrine and first words. He now begins the letter in the same way. The emphasis of sound doctrine, first words and final words. Here it's first words. The widespread consensus among commentators is that this letter was written after the book of Acts ends. After that story ends is when Paul was writing to Timothy. So hang with me here. Um, Paul was in prison at the end of the book of Acts. He was in Rome in a prison. And so, again, the vast consensus amongst commentators is that he was eventually released from that first imprisonment in Rome, where it ends in Acts chapter 28. And that was in the late 50s or early 60s of the first century. And then he engaged in ministry once again, traveling once again with Timothy and others once again. And then eventually would be imprisoned again in the mid to late 60s, which is where he would write 2 Timothy from. And if you know 2 Timothy, Paul knows he's basically, he's at the end. He knows he will not see Timothy again, that he will not get released this time, that he eventually will be put to death in Rome. So with that consensus, this letter would have been written about five years after Paul gave that warning to the elders in Ephesus. Five years later, he's now writing this letter. And unfortunately, we see those fears that were verbalized have now become realized. He warned them. And it happened. And now he's writing and he sent Timothy to address it. To write the ship there and to charge him with, you see that opening phrase, you got to remain there. So maybe Timothy didn't know how long he was going for. Paul says, I'm sending you there. And now he's running up following. He goes, you got to stay. The reports I'm getting, you got to stay. 
And the letter contains no pleasantries for the church in Ephesus, like Paul does in many other letters. There's no opening statement of gratitude for the church there. It skips the pleasantries and dives right in to address a very real problem. Again, let me read it, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Whenever Paul was told um, that there was a church that was compromising the gospel, that the foundational map for belief and life as a Christian, it was of utmost emergency for him. He would take it head on. Again, we saw it in Galatia, different heresy that was happening there, but no pleasantries in the letter to the Galatians. When this is the issue, he goes right in. Um, so maybe one way to think about this is that if you've been in a situation where you have been tasked with formally guiding someone else in your field of expertise, so if you have a field of expertise, whatever maybe level of expert you might consider yourself, or you might not even use that word, but you have been given a task by the powers to be to train someone to come up behind you, to maybe be your replacement. Um, maybe there's a mentorship program at work or within your company or organization. Maybe you're a manager and you're going to retire or you're going to move departments. And before you go, you have to train the person who's now going to be doing your job. Maybe you're a coach talking to the captain of your team. Maybe you're a graduating senior and you have to guide a rising junior to say, hey, you're going to be the captain next year. So any situation, one of those or something different in your life where you know you have to train someone to come up behind you. Whatever it is, it's generally good to have a clear item of greatest consideration. The one thing they need to know above all else, right, to give them clarity on here's what you need to know. To be successful in this, you'll need to blank. For Paul, the greatest consideration for pastors and elders is to guard the gospel in their church. The greatest consideration. Because again, the problem in Ephesus was not a new member who just joined and causing division. It was not the city of Ephesus coming in and persecuting for them for their beliefs, even though they were experiencing that. Not the, even though they were experiencing that, that was not the greatest consideration for Paul. This was not outside conflict coming in. That was threat number one. The problem was that certain persons, which he mentions twice in those short verses, serving as elders in the church, that were causing the problem. It was the teachers. It was the overseers. It was the shepherds. And we don't have time this morning to give all the specifics of what is considered the Ephesian heresy. Uh, we'll dig a little bit deeper into that next week. But Paul describes it. He doesn't explain it in full, but describes it shortly in those verses. Do you notice it? He says, describes it as devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The, the, the problem is now wrong belief which led to wrong behavior. That's why doctrine's important, because what you believe will shape how you behave. It's true for all of us. And so, teachers, you're teaching something different, they're gonna start acting different in the church. Not good. Devoting themselves to speculation and the wrong behavior being a lack of love, which we'll get to in a moment. So, if I could put it this way and just carry this illustration forward, um, Ephesus had a bad map. They had a bad map in their church. There was no clarity on doctrine. 
therefore, they were leading people astray in the church and then in the city. And it was kind of like a, a, a silly, a silly um, heresy. Like, like, like they're consumed by these endless debates about Old Testament genealogies leading to wild speculations and assertions. All the while crowding out the power of the true gospel. There's no indication they were denying the gospel. They were just crowding it out. Which is a problem because the gospel is the only thing that can bring about saving faith. It's just, just a bad map, just silly roads to nowhere. Uh, there's an old Brit- British author. His name is Lewis Carroll. I came across a, a quote of his this past week, and he says this tongue-in-cheek. He says, quote, If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. <laughs> if you don't know where you're going, you can take any road, and you'll get there. This was the false doctrine, consumed by immature, meaningless debates that led to nowhere, brought people nowhere. And the problem wasn't passion, right? It's not that they weren't passionate. They were very much into it. It was not an issue of lack of interest or apathy, but a lack of substance, right? Because isn't it true that it doesn't matter how fast you're going if you're going in the wrong direction? Passion is not what's most important in life because you can be passionately wrong. I can be passionately wrong. Truth is what is most important and then passion that can flow from that truth. And so I think this heresy, if we'll call it that, is still relevant today, that this is not just a history lesson for us about the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but some of the most dangerous heresies in both our culture and our churches are things that lead to endless debates with wild speculation. So let's go kind of the cultural element first. Um, the doctrine that is most prominent in the day today, uh, kids in elementary school and middle school and high school, this is the primary doctrine you are facing each and every day in your life, in your schools, online, everywhere. And the doctrine that says no one can tell you how to live. You decide that for you. Find your truth. Free yourself from the shackles of other people telling you how to live. You, your own person, You decide what's most important for you, and then you live that truth to the fullest. That's the cultural doctrine of the day. What is that if not individualized speculation? Just speculate on what's right for you, and then live it. Is that not a road to nowhere? It's not just in our culture, though. This even emerges from our churches. Let me give a few examples. Um, one of the most dangerous trends that picked up steam in the 20th century was people within the church being consumed with the end times. Consumed with digging into scripture and finding hints and secret codes in books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and then connecting it to modern day rulers or events and being like, look, it's been there the whole time. And then using that to maybe take the extra step to say, this is the last year of existence. Maybe even picking a date and raising a whole bunch of money by telling people to sell everything they have and support their ministry because the world is going to cease to end soon. And it's all to pinpoint the last days, and it leads to speculation. Endless debates about nothing that lead people to nothing. Uh, Similarly, I think the prosperity gospel is guilty of this. It leads to discussions of health and wealth and material blessing and living your best life now, and God just wanting to bless you And do you have enough faith to get the blessing you need? Speculating how much faith is enough faith for God to bless you. 
You can talk about the progressive gospel that will deny certain aspects of the Bible in order to make it more palpable to other people. That if we just get these beliefs aside, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, come on, it's a little, it's, it's a step too far for people to believe. If we just kind of ditch those, then maybe more people will come into our churches. Speculation. You could talk about um, aspects of a, a more social gospel that cares more about life on earth than it does in eternity. You could talk about a nationalistic gospel that marries the church to a political party. Speculation. It's all over. And what they all have in common is that they are distorted maps. Roads to nowhere. And in Ephesus, and oftentimes today, the scariest part is that it's the elders who are the primary offenders. Elders should not be speculators of any doctrine, but stewards of true doctrine. That's the contrast Paul gives. The stewardship of the gospel that is by faith is contrasted with the speculating about any kind of doctrine. Because speculation is rooted in myth. Stewardship is rooted in historical events. Uh, in her book, Another Gospel, question mark, there's an author named Elisa, Elisa, I'm not sure how to pronounce her first name, Childers. She writes this. She says, I'm more convinced than ever. That Christianity is not based on a mystical revelation or self-inspired philosophy. It's deeply rooted in history. In fact, it is the only religious system I can think of that depends upon a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus, being real. The gospel is not a once upon a time story. It's rooted in a faith in historical events that either happened or they didn't happen. Real people. Real cities, and most of all, a real person named Jesus. A man who was born in the city of Bethlehem, to his mother who was a virgin. A man who lived for 33 years, lived 30 of those years as a carpenter, and then engaged in a three-year ministry that was disruptive, ticked a lot of people off. Eventually, those people gathered enough ammo to kill him and have him crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus, the man who was buried in Jerusalem for three days, and a man who three days later rose from the dead. And of all the complexity of world religions and beliefs and doctrines of Christianity, the stunning simplicity comes down to this. Is Jesus alive today? Do you believe he rose from the dead? We, we sang it this morning. I believe in the resurrection if you believe in the resurrection, that changes everything. If he did not rise from the dead, if Jesus is still dead, Christianity is a road to nowhere. Find a new hobby on Sundays. But if he did, he is God. And he is alive. And everything he said was true. And the response is to repent and believe by faith, Paul says. The stewardship of the gospel by faith. Because our hearts were created by God and our hearts will not be at rest until they are at rest in him. You'll be always searching but never finding. You can be at rest in him. This is sound doctrine and first words. And that leads to lastly, number three. Sound doctrine's first and final aim. What is sound doctrine's first and final aim? What is the primary evidence that we have a sound doctrine? Can we just be honest? How do we know we have the right map? There's a whole lot of maps out there in the world. How do we know we have the right one? 
Verse 5, if your Bible's open, look down again. Paul writes, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The first and final aim of Christian doctrine is that true belief will lead to true behavior. And true behavior can be summed up in one word, love. This is not just Paul's opinion. This is God's conviction. Because when Jesus was asked by people who were trying to trip him up, and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Translation, um, what's the pinnacle of right doctrine, Jesus? What's the top of the mountain? What is the most important belief? And they're trying to trip him up. But Jesus says, you know what? I know what you're trying to do, but I'm going to answer this question. Because this is an important question. And he says in Matthew 22, and it'll be up on the screen, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. A life shaped by love, a love for God and a love for others, is the marker that you are on the right path of the map you've been given. Let me say that again. A life shaped by a love for God and love for others is the marker that you're on the right path of the map you've been given. All right, so let me illustrate it this way. A uh, little participation, raise of hands. How many in here have ever been on the Appalachian Trail? Any section of it? High up, high up, high up, high up. Let me get a percentage here. All right, 50%, 50% maybe, 40%. Okay, hands down. How many in here have hiked the entire Appalachian Trail? All right, church resolution. Who wants it? All right, we need one for next year. You can start in March. You'll go to September. We'll, all right, we'll talk later. Um, all right, how about this? Has, does anyone know someone who has hiked the entire Appalachian Trail? Hands up. All right, about the same amount as the first. Um, the Appalachian Trail is a continuous trail from Georgia to Maine. It is 2,190 miles. I learned this this week. The longest, it is the longest hiking-only footpath in the world. The longest hiking-only footpath in the world, Appalachian Trail. The entire thing has a single trail marker the entire way. 2,190 miles, and that marker is called the White Blaze. We have a picture of it up on the screen. The White Blaze, it's on trees, it's on posts, it's on rocks. It's a rectangle of white paint, two inches wide, six inches high. And when you're on the trail, again, you see it periodically. And the reason why you see it periodically is because they want to give you assurance that you're still on the Appalachian Trail. It indicates you're on the right path. For hikers, whether you're just doing a day hike or you're going the whole thing, every time you see that white blaze, it's a little bit of assurance. You could have a whole map of the Appalachian Trail, detailed map. I think they have even apps now that give you the map of the trail in every section of it to know where you're supposed to be. But it is the markers that affirm you're actually there. In the same way, church, sound doctrine is the map of Christian belief that will shape your life. It will tell you where you're supposed to be. But it's the marker of love that affirms you're actually there. It's the marker of love for God and for others that you are 
still on the trail. And the end result of false doctrine is speculation, arrogance, judgment, coldness. But the end result of sound doctrine is love. And as Jesus said, starting with the love for God, not just the basic knowledge of God, not just being able to pastor the Bible study, pass the Bible study tests or answer the questions correctly, not just a base knowledge, but an affection. We talk about this all the time. Knowing God is an affection for him, not just a knowledge of him. An affection for the one who brought you from darkness to light and then overflowing to a love for others that if you truly have received love, that that pours into you and is now able to flow out of you and love others, not just your friends and your family, but it includes your friends and your family, also your neighbor, also your enemies. My goodness, what a marker, what a white blaze. And this is why sound doctrine is of first importance to Paul. This is why his command to Timothy was so urgent, because what the elders teach will impact what the church believes. And what the church believes will impact the way the church behaves. And if they get it wrong, their behavior will not be shaped by love. And if a church that is not shaped by love, we will not see faith strengthened in our midst. If we're not shaped by love, we won't see faith awakened of non-believers in our lives that we seek to know him we certainly will not have a faithful public witness if we are shaped by love. We'll be weak. We'll be no different from the world. Again, we'll all need a new hobby. But there's a narrative you might hear from time to time, maybe a narrative you have believed and been spoken, and maybe there's good reason in church hurt that have made you believe this or say this, that churches should not worry about doctrine. Churches have to get over doctrine. Nobody cares about doctrine. It only turns people away. The church should just be known for their love. And if we just are known for our love in our community, then people will be drawn to us. So doctrine turns people away. Love draws people near. Let's just be love, not doctrine. The Bible says, and 1 Timothy 1 says, you can't separate them. You cannot love fully the way God designed you without sound doctrine, without a good map. So let us be wary of separating them. In fact, every single time in 1 Timothy that the word love is written, it's paired with faith. Eight times. You will not see the word love in this letter where it is not also paired with faith. So January 2023, let us decide now in our hearts that the highest standard you will hold when it comes to committing to a church, the highest standard you will hold the elders at this church, or if Grace Church is not your home church or will not be your home church, that now or in the future, wherever you go, you ensure that sound doctrine is your primary commitment. Not just on paper, not just lifted, listed on a church website, but a commitment to gospel-centered teaching and doctrine that you see and feel manifested in a culture in the church, a culture of love within that community. Make sure that is your primary commitment now or wherever the Lord leads you in the future. And finally, to close, let me give a brief word to those who are sitting here this morning and you know that your love has grown weary. Um... Your love for God has grown cold. You have been covered more by apathy. You hear it. You maybe even believe it and agree with it, but you just don't care that much. I don't say that as an accusation. I say that as a reality that we can all find ourselves in. The love has grown cold towards God and towards others. Consider this final quote. This one's not on the screen, but again from Bobby Jameson's book. 
if your love for God is growing cold, you can turn up the heat by taking a big dose of sound doctrine. Prayerfully meditating on it and pressing it into your heart. Or perhaps you're struggling to love another person, he writes. Maybe it's a difficult family member, an overbearing boss, or a church member who has given you the cold shoulder. Stop and patiently consider how deeply you have been loved by God in Christ. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us, Romans 5. These are final words. These are first words. So don't forget your map, Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, uh, the guide that it is, not just a list of behaviors to do, but it is a story of a person to behold. And increase our trust now that every time we are reminded through your word of what you have done for us, you also remind us that you will hold us fast. That is not up to us to cling on to faith, but it's up to us to acknowledge that you are holding on to us, Lord. I pray that you would allow us to confess truth in our hearts, grow that love for us, for you, and our trust that you will not let us go. And let that message and that life be a witness to the world that you have placed us. Let it be true, Father. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand now together as we respond in song before the Lord's Supper.